All of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. As you know, faith is a complicated thing and this journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and I am also on this journey of becoming. I am dedicated to inviting you into my story and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. I want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey. I want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. I have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of faith's biggest allies. I have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And I believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining me on that journey. All right, friends, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josh Patterson, and please join me in welcoming back to the podcast for their second time, Dr. Jonathan Foster. Jonathan, how's it going? I'm doing good, man. Thank you. It's really good to be back. You're brave to have me on, not (laughs) once, but twice. So thank you. Appreciate it. Absolutely. It's been... Geez, how it's been a little while now, right? Since uh, you were on the been, last time, I've just been sitting around waiting for the for Josh to call me on the phone. Like, <laughs> when, yeah. when is it going to happen? So now, yeah. yeah, probably. Did we talk about theology of consent? Probably a year mm-hmm. or so ago. So yeah, um, that was listeners can actually go back and find that in the you know in the archives, so to speak. That was a fun conversation. Yeah, it was. It was good. So it's cool to be with you again. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Like I was uh, telling you before we started out of nowhere today, I just kind of started feeling not great. So, uh, but I, I really enjoyed your book. And so I didn't want to, uh, you know, push off this, this interview and postpone it. So hopefully I don't, I don't come off as sick or something, <laughs> but if I do listeners bear with me, uh, I'm only human after all, you know? So, um, but yeah, so you have a new, book out called mm-hmm. indigo the color of grief or actually i guess it's not technically out yet right well I don't, the... know when, I don't know when this will drop so we did a crowdfunder that went really well and that was a cool way to get going and then now um it'll be live december 5 on the amazons and everywhere else so if this goes before people can pre-order it if it goes after just you know like normal so yeah it's it's good to go good deal well that's exciting i'm i'm excited for it to uh exist in the world obviously i've had the privilege of reading it beforehand um and i really enjoyed it it was it was cool to kind of see because it's it's such a different kind of book than the first book of yours that i read which was um again theology of consent uh 
And it was really cool. It has more of like a poetry vibe to it, which I was digging. Um, so yeah, it was it was it was fun. I think too. I was telling you um, prior to we started recording when I was kind of looking through it before, I skimmed over it a couple times uh, on like the digital PDF copy it sent me. Um, but then I was like, hmm, I kind of want to just experience this thing all at once, and so. Mm-hmm. I printed it out and then sat down and read the whole thing all in one sitting, um, which didn't take too long. Uh, mm-hmm. But it was I'm glad I did because I felt like you were creating not just a book, but an experience and inviting people into it. So I thought that was a cool way to engage it. I'm glad you did that. I've heard that from uh, multiples of the kind of pre-reading people who wound up just reading it in one sitting. And partly you can do that because it's not. It's not super long. I mean, it's only 12,000 words. The way I formatted it in the kind of poetry style, you know, it's 160 some pages, but I leave all this white space on purpose to try to give people room, you know, metaphorically, I suppose, symbolically room to process their stuff as I'm trying to process mine. So I'm not surprised to hear you say that. And um, yeah, that's, that's kind of cool. It was also, uh kind of interesting too on it too about an experience that I had uh while reading it so I printed it out and I just did like you know double-sided front and back and I didn't have a kind of stapler that was like strong enough to you know staple the whole thing so I kind of just picked it up and looked for you know where there was like a chapter break and um ended up stapling in three different places but I found when reading those three places kind of worked very well it was interesting, interesting. so my first section that I read was from uh, absence to uh, this, this one. Come on. I should have wrote this down beforehand um, to late. So mm. absence to late was kind of like the first. That's a good. Yeah, it's kind of a good first section. Yeah. Um, as kind of a movement. And then from interpretation to um, let's see. Where'd it go? Yeah, and this is bad podcasting. I should have wrote this down. Uh, <laughs> interpretation to anyone, um, mm. which was kind of a cool break. And then from strange, mm-hmm. you know, through on to the, the end of the book. So it was completely random, but it felt like three kind of important movements uh, within the book itself. So I thought that was, I don't know, I weird or spooky. <laughs> I should have gotten your input before I put this together, man. I could have done. I like that three movements in the one, and oh well, I'll get them. I'll get the next one. I'm already. <laughs> I'm already working on the. It's not really a sequel, but it's the second. I think I've got mm-hmm. three three books like this that are kind of similar. So maybe I'll oh, cool. work it in there. Yeah, well, tell. I guess I'm curious. I mean, I you share your you know your story and kind of where. Um, the grief that you explore comes from but why like why now what was it about um i don't know maybe your current life situation or this specific moment in time but why did you feel like telling your story of grief now made the most sense yeah that's interesting so in some ways i've kind of been telling it all the way through you know like if you had 
been a part of you know my church for example when i was a pastor when this all went down when my daughter died on new year's day 2015 you know for those first couple of years it's not that i necessarily said her name every week but i mean basically it was in real time people could tell i was trying to process this and and i wrote about it some then and in a kind of a handful of different ways so in one way i've kind of been writing about it in another way not to this depth and in this way. And I think what happened was that whole thing served to be an event that catalyzed me into this whole new stratosphere of um, thinking and rethinking my faith. Speaking of your podcast, um, I'll see how many times I can work in your podcast name through the- I I appreciate it. It's like an extra five bucks every time. So sneak (laughs) them in there. (laughs) Okay. Um, so yeah, it just kind of set me into this whole new thing. And, um, for the past eight and a half now, almost nine years, I've just been kind of wrestling with it or playing with it. Um, the grief, the pain piece of it, but also what I think that it means theologically and what I think it might say about God and about humanity and about beauty and loss and life and all of these things. And so I suspect what happened is, you know, I've written several other books, so I had to kind of get that out of my system. And I did the dissertation, Theology of Consent, which was kind of these huge concepts that I was trying to play with. And after that all got done, which was a lot of work for me, I'm not by nature like an academic person. I mean, we would have all laughed. If you'd have known me 20 years ago, this, you know, this was not, this was not on the plan. Um, But I think I had to try to get it kind of straight in my head as much as one can with theology. And then it's like, I got all those words out. The dissertation is like 80,000 words, which is fairly normal, but I mean, it's a lot of words uh, for me. And then after that, in the wake of all that, kind of in the quietness of all that, I was feeling like, oh, I need to process this grief some more with um, with less words. <laughs> How much can I say in with as few words as possible? to try to convey the meaning. So I don't know if that's a great answer to the question, but it feels like something like that happened, like like the dissertation and all that other stuff, all the sermons and the books and the blogs and the dissertation served as the thing that kind of just thrashed everything out of the way. And in the wake of all that, I was able to write Indigo. And um, I guess I'm really thankful for that. Yeah, that, I mean, that's interesting. It's. Um... So for me, like I, I mean, I, we all have experienced grief, I guess, to similar, mm-hmm. um, you know, within our lives and not, mm-hmm. not necessarily, um, you know, for, for example, for me, I've experienced loss of like a grandparent, but mm-hmm. I haven't experienced the kind of, um, loss that you have, for example. Mm-hmm. And so my grief, the kind of things that for me that I grieve kind of look different, um, mm-hmm. like when I was reading through Indigo, the kind of thing that kept coming up in me was kind of a grieving of um, like an unprocessed grief or, or perception of loss of uh, kind of my church experience and maybe what could have been with that um, kind of thing. And so for me, when I think about that, my way <laughs> of kind of handling grief is either suppress it, which is not helpful, or I go like super heady and 
so I feel like my my thing would be like, okay, I now I have to figure out like some kind of theological framework that makes sense of this, da 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 da. And that would kind of be like this um in some way processing, but also at the same time, it, it would be me pushing it away so I didn't have to feel it. Mm. And then maybe eventually I would be able to kind of like settle down a little bit and be like, okay, I kind yeah. of like maybe now, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Um so I don't know. I just I find that that interesting. Um and yeah, I don't know. I I had something else I would say, but I want to see if there yet any thoughts there. Yeah, that's uh, obviously everyone's going to process it differently. I'm really glad you said what you said there at the beginning. It reminds me that, yeah, people should not hesitate to read the book. Like if you're someone who hasn't lost a kid or maybe something that feels that intense. Yeah, it's it's for all of us. And I've noticed that there's and I I get it. I totally get it. That there's this a uh, little bit for some folks like oh I can't I can't quite relate to that or that's so hard I won't be able to really understand but all of us have experienced loss whether it's you know loss of a relationship um, of of a loved one or of time you know time itself passes by and that's a loss and then you just named the church thing like so many people in all of our in both of our circles are experiencing this whole loss of like, what, what did that even mean? And what could it have been? And what could this world be? And what could church be? And who could have I have been as a pastor or as a leader or whatever? And so when you, when something gets ripped away from you like this, yeah, it really invites you to think about your identity and who you are. And, you know, as, as we both know, our, everything's relational and our identity is created out of relationships. And when that thing is removed from your life, it's, um, it's super, super challenging. So, and then the other thing I'll just comment on is, yeah, for sure. Like we all, and I think maybe those of us who are more masculine programmed than feminine to like do a really good job or a really bad job as it were of suppressing and trying not to, you know, deal with it too much because it's just not a part of the script of masculinity in our culture, which is basically we have to win and dominate and constantly, you know, metabolize all this stuff quickly so that we can get onto the next thing and make sure that the ledger is always, you know, going up and to the right. And it's a really hard, I mean, it's one of the, there's multiple things that are super awkward and difficult about grieving. One of them for me has been constantly being reminded that in some ways I'm kind of like this might sound too intense and and I don't mean it to be about my self-esteem necessarily but in some ways I'm kind of like a loser I mean I'm I've just lost and I've lost a ton of things in my life um the dot my daughter's most intense but there's been a bunch of other things that have just absolutely broken my heart so to constantly be in that position where you feel like oh man it's just yeah it's a it's a vulnerability thing and it's a power thing and i don't mean to suggest that females don't deal with that because i know that they they do as well but i do think that uh, men especially american males especially caucasian straight american males maybe uh relatively affluent i say relative because i don't feel affluent but i know compared to my haitian friends i am so 
yeah, I think we struggle with all of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think so. Um, there's, and I mean, I guess that's too, where like when people talk about um, something like patriarchy and they name how patriarchy obviously is harmful to women, uh, but also it can be harmful to men as well. Right, exactly. Uh, because it it sets this kind of false standard uh, for what it means to be um, a man or manly or, you know, something like that. That's, I think that's so true. I, you know, um, I was having a conversation with a author friend of mine who's written something about James Baldwin. And as we were talking, I was reminded about um, how much Baldwin helped me probably five, six years ago when I was, among other things, this particular loss, as I already mentioned, you know, kind of catalyzed my changing and rethinking and of my theology. And so as I was in the middle of that, I was trying to wrap my head around human sexuality and what the Bible has to say and who God is and all these things. And and reading James Baldwin in the middle of all that really helped me in an indirect way, although maybe it's direct because he was a gay man. But um, <clears throat> he would say something, um, like I'm paraphrasing, but he would say something about black-white relationships in America like it's not just that white people need to treat black people better. That's not just, it's not good just for the black person. It's good for the white person. It's good for humanity. And I remember reading that. I don't know if it was right in that second or during that week or whatever, and a whole bunch of other things happening, thinking, oh my Lord, this is the same thing with straight people and gay people. Like it's not just good for the people who fall outside of the normalized whatever sexual expression it's not just good for them it's good for me it's good for humanity so yeah i'm just saying what you already said which is yeah it's it's uh good for others and good for myself so to wrestle with that vulnerability and to admit it and to sit there is super super hard but i think it's good for everybody involved yeah and i i mean i think in a real way too you are inviting people into kind of breaking that kind of cycle with Indigo because you were willing to go vulnerable, right? Into the, the, the tricky, painful, you know, parts of yourself and kind of put them on display and invite people into your story. Um, which I think, you know, for me, story is just so powerful and listeners are probably tired of hearing me say it, but <laughs> I think, when in life there is this invitation to go deep enough into one's own story where others can see themselves there um, and recognize, you know, themselves and uh, know that they're not alone or something like that. And so totally. kind of inviting, you know, people into your story in a way that is vulnerable, I think fights against kind of the, you know, st patriarchal standards that are kind of put up and put forth. Um, yeah, I think in some ways, um, it's funny, just I haven't thought about it until hearing you say some things like that. But I think in some ways, it's it's a, a defiant move for me. It's a move of, of like, um, no, this is what I think a healthy human can do and could do. And so I'm trying to do that. And I'm trying to bring people along with me and not just take the standard tried and true route of ignoring it and 
speaking only about power and trying to pretend that, you know, I haven't experienced this gap, this huge absence, this loss in my life. So it's a really awkward, weird thing. And like, I don't like it, but also strangely kind of like honored. And all of a sudden I found myself here and, you know, I write, that's the thing I do, I think better than anything else. Um, and so I've just, yeah, I just decided I would lean into it and, and try to go as deep as I possibly, well, I didn't, I mean, I didn't kind of really didn't have a choice. I was already drugged down so deep. So while I was there, try to make sense for me and hopefully for other people. Yeah. You know, I think, I mean, I think you accomplished that goal. And um, I mean, I, even something like, so there, there was a part uh, in your writing that kind of made me chuckle. Um, but it also, again, it was kind of this like realness like in the kind of in this face of grief and stuff and just the kind of silly things that people do um there's a bit where you end up uh like i forget the word that you're maybe spectrometer but you're like oh that fucking spectrometer and you're like oh you know for whoever's listening sorry for saying fuck and like yeah. that i chuckled at that but that is such like a a, a human kind of moment and response where like there you're experiencing something that's so deep and raw and then at the same time you know you you act out of that and then you're like oh wait a minute am i allowed to say that kind of thing like that that moment in the book i think brings the humanness to it it's where i know that it's not just like a bullshit book for you because it i think it, it would be it's you know there's so many books out there i'm sure that people have written that are very um academic about grief and it's like here's your brain this is what's happening blah 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 blah. these drugs can help you um but i think what i love about your book about grief is how it just invites someone into an experience and um like i i guess the closest thing for like real deep grief that i've experienced is uh, i had like a pretty strong bout of depression mm -hmm. um and so like some of the kind of um absence language and the the no thingness language that you use like i found myself in that like it was a mm -hmm. real just a, a being seen kind of thing which i think sometimes can have more power than just the here's the 10 neurotransmitters in your brain that you know what i mean <laughs> yeah totally totally it's back to that story thing that you're talking about when we can um enter into the story of with someone else we you know we experience it ourselves and i i have had a growing number of people of course at this point not a ton of people have read it but um that's that's been a growing um uh, response of like the really interesting way and i, and I didn't plan on this I'm, I'm not really that smart but it seems to have developed in a way where it's equal parts really raw and this is the story and really bad and like this is awful but also oh it might be hopeful but not in a christiany kind of like god's coming to fill the gap and everything's going to be complete and perfect way so i'm really thankful i didn't set out necessarily to do that directly i'm thankful that that worked out that way and it's i yeah i have to laugh here and you talk about the f word cuz i'm not a very good I don't, I don't cuss very well. I'm just, you know, just, I don't, I'm, I'm not as good as you are at that. <laughs> I've and, had a little uh, bit too much practice. <laughs> <laughs> no, lots of my friends, it, you know, it can be 
yeah so to write that and to actually put it in print um which would which would just scare a lot of people a lot of my friends probably um but it's but it's what i felt and it's what was going on so it seemed to be the only thing only thing appropriate to say at the time yeah i think language when used properly because i mean yeah is is powerful and if that's the word that fits best in that moment i think it it within your text it does convey that sense of power and i mean i remember i had a, a hermeneutics professor tell me one time like hey like don't underestimate the uh, or not hermeneutic, sorry. Um, dang it, sermon writing. Um, whatever that's called. Uh, there's a big word for it. There's a word for it. Yeah, homiletics or something. Homiletics. Or? There we go. There we Nailed go. it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, homiletics professor, tell me, like, never to underestimate the uh, the power of a strategically placed F word. Uh, yes. <laughs> in yes. a sermon, and so I thought that was interesting. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm trying to. I'm trying to see because my mind wants to to jump around and I have um go for it, man. Just jump around. Me. Yeah, there's so one of the points when when you're talking about hope, like hopefulness, but not in a way that was, you know, like too Christianese or something like that. I think a big example of that for me um was you a lot of when you make theological claims or statements within the text, it's very invitational language, like perhaps it's like this or maybe yeah. it's like that I or suspect yeah i suspect or you you i mean you're the bit your section on beauty i absolutely loved that um that was w- wonderful um but the there was this point when you talked about being <clears throat> excuse me being flattened and like completely flattened and you kind of had this realization of like well wait a minute what am i being flattened against like mm. there's something there's something there and for me that's hopeful without doing the like, oh, like everything happens for a reason kind of thing. <laughs> right. Like that's that's an example of that that really stood out to me. <clears throat> um, cool. I'm glad for that. And yeah. that was really important to me. And it has been a growing awareness on my part over the last, again, eight, nine years of just growing more and more comfortable with not having to be certain about how to name this and what to name it and to try to keep it really open so that the reader doesn't feel pressured to name it a particular way. Now, some of, you know, our more Christian-y friends are going to be frustrated by that. But, you know, I, I, it's, it's, it may not be for them. It's, it's really for the person who has the courage to let this massive, massive thing that Frankly, no one can ever really get to the bottom of. I mean, if if we could answer, you know, all the problems with theodicy, then, you know, we we would be. Well, I started to say we'd be God, but I'm not even sure God can answer all the problems with theodicy. I think he or she is in the midst of it with us, trying to figure it out. So, um, yeah, I don't know what I was saying, but it'll come back to me at some point. But anyhow, um. Yeah, so that that was that was important not to try to be too definitive about it, and and also that wasn't I'll, the other thing I'll say is that wasn't fake. Like if I'd have written it five or ten years ago that way, it might have been not fake's too strong a word, but it might have been slightly misleading because I might have been like, oh, I'm just going to do this because 
I want to be nice, but I really know that what I really, you know, know is that God is actually, you know, going to fix it all perfectly in the end. Um, and now it's more like, it's just a risk, man. Love is a risk. If, if risk isn't involved, I don't know what the hell it is. I mean, honestly, it's just not, it's just not love unless vulnerability is a, is a part of the thing. So I'm trying to be honest about that, but also be honest about what I think that I think, which is that love is patient and love is endlessly creative. And so I'm trying to hold on to the, to the, to the tension of all that. Yeah. You have um, a really beautiful bit where you're, um, talking about love uh that was deeply moving to me and i'm going to jack up your words so this is uh jonathan foster translated by josh patterson <laughs> <laughs> it'll probably be better but That's fine. but you basically you did this bit where you talked about um that you think with great love kind of comes great suffering and that perhaps we should uh pity i don't know if this is the right word but pity those who don't experience great suffering because perhaps it's that they haven't had the privilege of experiencing great love. Mm. And like, that was kind of a moment where I, you know, stopped reading for a little bit and rolled that one over in my head a few times. And actually I thought about that um, for a good majority of my way home yesterday when I was mm. driving home from work, you know, the, my hour commute. So that, wow. that bit on, on love and, and, uh, Suffering, commute, I think, is the huge. Commute, the commute made you feel like you were suffering. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, here's so here's actually this is a hundred percent what I did. I when I got in my car, I was like, I want to just sit with this and like sit in the kind of emotion of it. And so I went onto my phone, like I'm doing now, and I looked up. What did I type in? I think I might have just searched grieving, mm -hmm. and then Spotify generated a playlist called "Coping for Loss," like made for Josh Patterson. Um, and I just listened to that on the way home Wow! while kind of sitting in the space and, and pondering, um, and some really interesting things happened, uh, for myself in that space. Uh, and so, yeah, it was like, seriously, cool. I, I've thought about that a lot. <laughs> That's really cool. Um, yeah. I wonder, I seems like you're probably talking about the part where I was walking with my, um, oldest boy up the steps and he turned around and says too hard and, and, um, yeah, so I go into a bit about that and end by saying what I think is um, it's probably like one of the best five or seven things I've ever said anywhere. And yeah, I told him that uh, um, maybe the reason this hurts so much is because there's so much love there. And in that way, we can be thankful because without that love, you know, this hurt is just evidence of the love. So that was really, really powerful for me, um, really important for me because it, in my heart and mind, and that little story happened. It either happened the night our daughter and his sister died, or it was the night after. I can't remember, but it was very early on. And it was something that um, I'll never forget for lots of different reasons, um, not the least of which is how much. how much pain I felt for my son who had just lost, you know, his best friend. 
Um, but also, yeah, something about the the love and the suffer the pain all wrapped up together. It's like symbiotic. It's like it's two sides of the same coin. Um, pain and beauty are not mutually exclusive. And I've basically been trying to unwind what that means, you know, this whole time. There's something really, really great about that, but also incredibly frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, for me, one of the reasons I turned to kind of open and relational thinking was wrestling with things like pain and suffering (laughs) Um, and not even necessarily my own. I mean, I had like a very um, shitty understanding of the divine and that was difficult for me. But the at first I found myself trying to explain away suffering and pain via, you know, in the mode of open and relational thought. Um, And it wasn't until much later and even dare I say more recently where I've started to kind of play with this kind of relationship that you're talking about. Um, And then that makes me curious too, if, you know, when we're talking about the divine and we say something like God is love, um, what does that entail for something like the uh, impassibility of the divine, which, you know, Hartshorn just says is a theological mistake, but I think there's something, there's something to that. Yeah. um, Well, I, I'm not going to disagree with, with Hartshorn. So um, I think impassibility is highly problematic and there's something for me and Tom, um, Tom Ord, obviously our mutual friend, we've had brief conversations about this and I don't know that he totally agrees with what I'm about to try to say. I still don't have it all figured out. So, you know, if the listener has a choice to, you know, go with me or Tom, they should definitely go with Tom. But there's there's something about love for me that has just been wounded and that is wounded. And it comes to us in a wounded, kind of fractured, broken way. And when I say that, I don't mean that it's necessarily weak. Although it is a type of weakness, but it's a weakness that becomes a strength, which I think really aligns well with open and relational thinking. And there's something about that gap and that that absence piece of it. Um, you know, I start the book by talking about, and it's really the main concept that I that really probably, and this maybe answers your very first question you asked. Now that I think of it, it's the thing that probably motivated me to write more than anything else, which was this fascination I was having with the absence of my daughter, literally not there, was creating a presence. It it was the presence of the absence. So there was no form there, but it was forming me, you know, literally no energy. Relationships gone, but it was energizing me, which side note. it was really fascinating for people who might be listening who are interested in they should read uh, Richard Boothby, uh, who has a book called Embracing the Void and also has a book called Blown Away, which is about his son's suicide. And uh, Rick and I have become friends now, which is a really cool thing. It's one of the, one of the best things about writing for me is getting to meet people like you and others. And um, so he and I have gotten to know each other over the last year. And we have 
we're, we're really, we don't say the same thing, but we're really harmonizing along this idea of the absence piece. So anyhow, sorry, I'm rambling. I just wanted to comment about when we say God is love, you know, love to me now, I've had to rehabilitate that word. I didn't want to get rid of it. Some of our theological words, I'm probably fine with getting rid of, but I, I didn't, there's just no way, it was no way I could get rid of love. So I've had to do all this work. So now when I say love, you know, I typically think non-binary, non-violent, non-scapegoating, intentional energy in relationship with God and others. But then I also add this, there's this absence piece of it. And I think the last thing I'll just say uh, on this, because I could probably talk too long, but when I think of the absence piece, I think that's really embodied in the life of Jesus as he interacts with others who are different from him and bring a type of um, absence that he has to kind of engage with because they all have these different problems that I might loosely define as absence, but it's really embodied on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's something really, really holy and awkward and weird about all of that. And so maybe if Jesus is the son of God, that that's a, that's evidence that there's a there's a bit of antagonism and absence in God herself and i think what i think is that god is love so all that to say yes love is problematic <laughs> mm. no i i love it i i i'm i'm glad you came to the jesus image um because for me when you know on days when i have a high christology I like to say cool things like <laughs> Jesus is the image of the invisible God or Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is. And so when I think about that in line with saying something like God is love, <clears throat> and then I think about the crucifixion and supposed resurrection of Jesus, at least within the stories, when Jesus comes back, when Jesus is resurrected, he still has his wounds. They're not gone. And he invites people into them like, yeah, Yeah. dude, check it out (laughs) kind of thing. And so I think that love as wounded um, and that kind of vulnerability, I, yeah, I don't know if I could give you a good like theological statement about it right now, but I think you're onto something. (laughs) All that to say, I think, I think you're onto something there and um also, well, obviously, were, I can't. Oh, I, yeah. Well, I was going to say, obviously, I can't give you a good theological statement either, and I just tried to write <laughs> about it, and I still can't. So, join the club. Yeah, well, maybe there's. I don't know. There's something fun about that. There's an honesty in it. Um, something to play with, right? To go back to the <clears throat> idea of not clinging to certainty, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it ties into how you talked about beauty, mm. because for me, like, so like go put everything back that I just said about Jesus and the resurrection and the wounds and all this stuff. Um, I don't know if that's true, but it's so beautiful that I really hope it is. And it ought to be true because of how beautiful it is. And sometimes um, I don't remember exactly how you said it, but you said something about beauty being more true than truth. There's something like that. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I said, I've decided after uh, at this stage, I suspect that beauty is truth more than truth is truth. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's good. Um, and also, as you were speaking about like the absence piece, um, and you know, ha- having that that loss and like literally the the physical absence of of a loved one, um, it kind of also fast forwarded me a little bit um, in your book, where I don't remember if a friend is telling you this or if you um, are kind of saying it yourself. But there was a part where you talk about um, how people that we have lost kind of exist if they were a process, right? You sort of get some processy language, uh, and we are too. Then the their existence impacted our own existence as a as yeah. a process, and they continue to um, kind of live on within us within our own process, right? Which is cool because the the nerd theology side of me was like oh cool this is like um objective immortality but with people <laughs> right. to an extent right so that i i don't know i thought that was kind of uh, a cool and beautiful moment as well yeah me too and i i loved how yeah theologically i, I can tell why you would like that and why we would both like that it's a very process open and relational saying um it's I, I allude to it a couple of times, but I, I definitely go a little bit deeper towards the end of the book when I'm talking about how interconnected everything is and enmeshed and entangled. And uh, it's all a nested system, you know, overlap like the baby inside the mom and the mom inside the baby. So, you know, cellular at a cellular level, they're literally um, physiologically connected. And it's in part why mom's and I think this is true of dads too, but it's clearly it's a little bit different physiologically. But uh, I think it's in part. Well, I guess what I was going to say was that it's when you hear moms years later say, "I still feel like my kid is with me." Like in some ways, they actually at a cellular level they might be still with them, and and vice versa. So they're sharing that. So they're affecting each other, and all of us. It's kind of like all of us are inside the womb. I, I think what I think is that we're inside the womb of God, but if it's not God, it's inside the womb of something. And we're all interconnected, sharing these psychosocial, cellular, atomic, you know, microbiological, cosmological, from the micro to the macro. It's so entangled, it's ridiculous. And um, All of that, like I said, I think might be God. And if if there's a God, then then maybe maybe it's possible that we are all blending in with her and then she's creating something new and we're all living this life that goes beyond us. And maybe that's a part of what heaven is. I don't know. And if it's not, it but we could still affect the way the future goes and it's crazy because my daughter's not been around for almost nine years, but the amount of the impact that that loss has had on my life, the incredible amount of growth that has happened, not only just with me psychologically and spiritually and emotionally, neurologically, but then with loved ones and friends. And then, you know, things obviously like Haiti, she was planning to go to Haiti to be a medical missionary and that got us going down there all the relationships, all the things we've done there. So it's really quite amazing to think about how much the absence of something can create something new. And somehow she lives in all that in some way, shape or form. And 
you don't even have to be a you don't even have to be believe in God to see how oh that's that's pretty cool and interesting. Of course, then if you don't believe in God, I can't imagine how it doesn't beg the question. Well, how did that happen? Like, wh- why why is that happening? You know, that's more than just that's more than just Darwinian survival of the fittest. Like, there's something really really interesting going on with all of that. Yeah, and to to that point and to an extent, if we take kind of all of that into consideration, the kind of impact felt like it's in a way you co-authored this book with yes. your daughter because of that. And yes. that's that's a really kind of cool and beautiful thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, and the, I don't know. I I love that that language too of the overlap and you talked about the kind of nestedness of things um, and kind of said, you know, maybe that overlap is is God or something like that. And I I liked that. Uh, that bit, it, it it stood out to me. Um, and also you you mentioned Haiti and in your in the book, there's a bit where you talk about um, your experience uh, kind of returning to, to Haiti and um, the soccer field bit and, and this kind of thing. And use this image of like a window that you were you were sitting and you just like couldn't quite see out the window but you could hear the kids like laughing and playing and this kind of thing and kind of said like maybe heaven's like that uh and i i found that really um beautiful and moving as well because i mean honestly for me heaven right now is more so a uh a hope if less than a, like, Hey, I'm pretty sure this is what happens when I die. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> something that I hope is true. And so I don't know. I liked that, that window uh, metaphor. And I also too, like how you, um, you know, the, the contrast of that, you talked about um, how kind of we can create heaven and in the same way we create hell. Um, and so I, I, that the heaven and hell bit was really, was really creative I, I enjoyed it well that's cool man thank you you know um a lot of that stems from the one little line from jack caputo which is his idea that god doesn't exist that god insists whether god exists is up to us will we will we align ourselves with the insistence and it's crazy how one tiny little sentence, um, so much life can can spring from that. So there's a lot of, and then also it's very congruent with uh, Abraham Heschel, who says God's waiting to be disclosed. And so I, I think, you know, Heschel would say something like um, what we would want to say, which is that, you know, as as God waits, yeah, that God might not be disclosed unless we pick up whatever the path, you know, pick up the invitation that love's laying down for us to, and then God can be disclosed in that. So I love all that. And then the, yeah, the Haiti story um, was super, again, it's one of those poignant, dramatic moments in my life that I will never, ever forget sitting in that little clinic that my daughter had helped construct a couple years before we were there. And then we were back in that same spot. It's a very remote place. 
it's only about 80 miles from Port-au-Prince, but it takes like, depending on, you know, depending on rain season and all that, it could be seven to nine hours and it's just driving over. There's no roads. It's just riverbeds and sides of mountains and cliffs. And it's ridiculous. It's every time we've gone, unfortunately, we haven't, we haven't been able to go in a couple of years because of the political unrest in Haiti right now. It's just not uh, appropriate to say the least to take any people down. But every time I take a group down or go with my oldest son who has taken lots of groups, <laughs> although half, half of the trip, I'm like, why am I doing this? This is not safe. This is ridiculous. It's not roads. Anyhow, um, to be in that room and, and to hear the kids playing soccer, I could hear them, but I couldn't see through the window. It was the same spot. My daughter had played soccer and had such a great experience. Um, and so I was imagining her in that moment. And I kept hearing those sounds and yes, then it made me think of heaven like, Maybe heaven is the sound, you know, I say in the book, heaven is a sound of children laughing. Um, but but maybe it is just a sound that's that's coming through that's then the rhythm against which, you know, we get to build lives and disclose God and lean into the insistence, you know, that the sound is an insistence. And as we do that, we co-partner to use your language. And by the way, thank you for saying that. I hadn't, I don't know that I totally thought about that, but you're absolutely right. In in many ways, my daughter did uh, co-author this thing with me, which, holy cow, that's going to mess me up for a couple of days now. So thanks for that. Um, I'll cover your uh, therapy bills. I apologize. Okay. Well, <laughs> I just need to, I need to mention your podcast name about a few hundred more times. And there you go. <laughs> Anyhow, yeah, the 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 sound of all that and the co-authoring and how much I really think, I really think it's a beautiful vision of what God might be like, that God's like this good parent who doesn't want, who, who maybe even can't do all the work and doesn't want to do all the work, but really wants to see what we will do and to partner with us and and to be able to do that with the divine. What an amazing Amazing thing we all get to be called into doing and building building heaven on earth. Or like you said, or maybe building hell too, because I think if the one is true, the other is true. I, I don't think hell exists. I think it insists. And if you want to lean into that, you can do that too. And obviously um a lot of people do, unfortunately. I think the super religious person might might do more than more than anyone. Yeah, that um, language of God being disclosed for many of the reasons that you just listed is um, really powerful to me. And it because I think of too, um, just in reading some uh, Jewish thought around theodicy and stuff, um, it, kind of talking about this idea of like, oh, look at all this bad stuff that's happening. Like, what is this revealing about God? And uh, this rabbi I was reading flipped it and said, well, like, no, it's what's it revealing about us, <laughs> right. how we are disclosing the divine. We're supposed to be image bearers and we're doing all this crazy shit like we're, you know, we have a role to play. And I, I, I know, you know, some people can get uncomfortable with that because of the whole like works righteousness thing and da da da. But I think this idea of God being disclosed actually and the, the, the co-partnering um, the co-creator language 
uh, actually gives more responsibility and maybe a sense of uh, call to use Christian language or something like that um, to humanity to kind of give us something to live into um, or not live into, right? <laughs> Which uh, we're pretty good at doing that as as well. Um, yeah, the word that comes to mind when you say that is um, esteeming. It it esteems humanity, and so much of Americanized religion has not done that. It's done the opposite. It, it's it's done everything it can. It has been able to do to suppress us. And I do I do want to say I I think a lot of times people have done that for good. They've had good intentions when they've done that, and I I totally get it. But um, now that we've arrived at this place and the evolution of who we are, we we clearly have the ability now to be able to kind of look backwards and see, okay, we see where all of that depravity, depravity kind of thinking got us and sinful thinking. And like in my own tradition, there wasn't a Sunday that went by that we weren't called to die out to ourselves and to completely um, do do away with our own desires. What I realized years later, um, and this is where Girardi and mimetic theory stuff helped me, was oftentimes it was not what the preacher wanted, but oftentimes what the preacher was doing was setting us up to be adversaries of God. Like we had to lay all of our stuff down and God had to win and we had to lose and you know sacrifice and all those things. There's a measure of truth in there, but um, I think the dysfunctional Americanized Christian religious system, you know, really infected it. And so it's it's not particularly healthy. So what I hear you say is something, you know, the word that came to mind was estimation and agency. And I just think that I don't think our world can hear enough of that. Like, So for listeners, especially young people, um, I really think that you you can figure it out. I mean, you you already kind of know what to do. You already have everything inside of you that you need. Um, and God's always been with you. You've always been with God. It's like when Jesus told the story about the prodigal son and the father's talking to the older brother, you know, at the end of the story. And he's like, look, man, you've always been with me. Everything I've ever had has been yours. And so for people listening, I think that might be the most powerful, one of the most powerful things that you can grab onto is the fact that God's already with you and you you already know it, you're capable and God esteems you, love esteems you, at least to use your language, that's what I want to think. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. And that's uh, what I would like to think as well, yeah. um, especially when, you know, pragmatically we see like how far our thoughts and prayers get us in well, various Things in life. And that's, I think, probably all that needs to be said about that. Um, but speaking of like the the pragmatic, um, I'm curious because I you talked about it in your book um, and I have seen this play out because it drives me crazy. You, you kind of share examples of different um, kinds of times of tragedy and loss in your life where a well-meaning friend came along and said something like, everything happens for a reason or God needed another angel or something like that. For me, that language has always just never sat well with me. It was always abhorrent, but I have seen friends 
who have suffered extraordinary loss, like crazy loss. The loss of, you know, they, um, a friend who had quadruplets and only two of them made it. Mm-hmm. Or a, a friend recently from college who um, experienced um, essentially a, a failed pregnancy, a, a miscarriage, mm-hmm. um, and will use this language of it's God's plan. God is, you know, blah, blah, blah. And for me, that never, like, it didn't work for me. That made me angry. <laughs> And so I was just curious, like in your own experience, did that kind of language like ever resonate with you? Or was that kind of always something that kind of bothered you? Like, what was that experience like for you? Yeah, so in the book, I think I mentioned four or five of the things that we've all heard. Uh, People will say, I guess God needed another angel. And or the other one is everything happens for a reason or. one of them that really did a number on me when I was younger was something along the lines of, well, God must have big plans for you. And when I was in my twenties and coming out of a very, uh, I mean, a lot of, a lot of really, really good stuff about the way I was raised and all things considered, I, I don't have much to complain about. Um, but religious wise, it was a lot of, you know, you were overcomers, victorious, and everything that happens happens for a reason that's make you stronger. And, you know, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I really bought into all that. And partly probably again, because of my masculinity, and also I'm pretty competitive by nature, and I'd like to win. And, you know, I just assumed I was, you know, everything was designed to <laughs> make my life better in the long run. So. um so that was one that tripped me up when I was younger. I kind of bought into that a little bit like, oh, yeah, I, okay. So now I'm really going to be really cool. I'm really going to be mega church pastor. And my church is really going to grow now. Or, or you know, back then I was writing songs. So like, yeah, I'm clearly going to have a number one song. And now it would be writing a book, you know. So I had to, it, that I really had to work through all that. And all of that stuff working through those things was a combination of my theology being pulled apart and then kind of being put back together one by one. I realized that, you know, those, those things way too simplistic. Um, Life's way, way more complicated than that. And, and also God, hopefully God is more complicated and interesting and intriguing than that. And, and not so boring as to do harm to, certain people in order to make my life better or whatever what a what an absolute joke that is it's terrible terrible theology so to answer that part of your question yeah it's taken me a few years to work through that to where now i have the confidence to say you know that's bs a lot of that stuff however what i also want to say is that yes to your point i have a lot of friends that still seem to gain some um, confidence and some assurance and some comfort from those things. And I don't always understand it either, you know, because to me, to enter into that, you would have, there'd have to be such cognitive dissonance to actually say God is love, but also that everything happens for a reason, because then God is what literally pulling the levers and pushing the buttons and causing my kid to die. I mean, 
it just doesn't make any sense if God's powerful and good, you know, none of these things make any sense. But to your point, you know, we're just meaning-making creatures, and if we latch on to something to help us make meaning, and it can, um, if it can, like, assuage or assuage, I don't know how to pronounce the word, the fears for a while, and dispel the darkness and the chaos and the absolute panic that can overtake us, which I absolutely believe is happening, you know, by gradations, um, various degrees to all the humans across the world. I mean, not everyone's going to deal with it as intensely as the next person, and not everyone is as even as aware of what they're dealing with. But I act actually really think that we have this dreaded existential sense of panic because we know we can't, we know down deep we can't control anything. And we're pretty sure God, like, it doesn't even make sense. God can't control it because if he could, this world would not be where it's at. So we latch onto these things and it gives us comfort and, and you know, it's, it's okay. And so now, even in that part of the book, I tried the first time I wrote it, I was, I was probably much more snarky and critical, um, which I know a lot of people would have really liked. And honestly, it probably, I probably would have sold more books, but as I read back through it a few times, I backed off on all that because I didn't feel it didn't feel gracious. It didn't feel like I was bringing compassion into the thing. And um, so I didn't want to shoot myself in the foot because I felt like the rest of the book, the rest of the writing was fairly compassionate and gracious. And, you know, having said that, I still have friends um, who who think, you know, that it was a little bit scapegoaty and I went too far. Anyhow, I'm trying to answer your question. I find that very interesting too how people can hold on to these very simple things. But but when I can just back up and take a breath and say, it's okay, I don't have to bring my dissertation brain into this. It's what humans do. And it gives me a chance to just be patient with them. It's good for me and for them. Back to our earlier theme. Sorry, that was a long rambling response. No, it's good. I mean, it's a, it's a complicated question, but I, I mean, I love that kind of posture of, um, stepping back and seeking compassion uh, because I know previ previous versions of Josh um, would want to do the like, well, let me throw this theology at you kind of thing. And totally. in those moments totally. of, of deep grief and pain, like it probably doesn't really like I it doesn't matter if people agree with me or not. Like that's not what they need right now. And, you know, if this kind of theological idea that I find abhorrent is serving a positive purpose for them in that moment. Maybe I should just let that alone for right now. And we yeah. can talk about that later. Um, yeah. You know, but that's, and you kind of talk about that in your bit about um, friendship, which I loved just the solidarity um, over solutions. Yeah. Yeah. It was really big. And uh, you know, those, those kind of friends that are willing to, you like go to hell with you <laughs> basically right. right well what's interesting about that is even just the way you're asking that makes me think so i basically wrote that trying to encourage people when you're connecting with someone who has been hurt this bad they're really they they really don't want solutions i mean they do but there aren't solutions so really what you give them is solidarity your friendship um 
And I think that that is a Jesus move. I think that's a move of love. But then now what I'm thinking of as we're talking about it is that's true for me too when I'm with the person, yes, who's doing what you're doing, who's coming up with this answer that I think is abhorrent. I can't, I shouldn't say I can't, but I probably, it probably doesn't serve anyone's, doesn't serve their best interest for me to, to then theologize to them and then try to fix their theology in that moment. In that moment, then now I am compelled to follow my own advice, which is, oh man, just be in solidarity with them. So what that their theology sucks? I mean, what, like your theology doesn't suck sometimes? It, you know, so it's so true and it works both ways. And that's why it's so challenging and hard. Um, so yeah, thanks. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just think there's so much wisdom in presence, like just mm-hmm. being with, and that was something that a professor of mine uh, in college, like really drilled in our heads was just presence. And, um, like, I mean, I even remember <clears throat> having... Is this your homiletics pre- professor? Same guy? <laughs> Di- different professor. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, this, right. was a youth, this was a youth ministry guy okay. um, who experienced all sorts of crazy things in his many, many, many years of youth <laughs> ministry. Um, yeah, it's Stephen, one of my favorite professors that I had at, at Messiah. Um, <clears throat> but, um, yeah, the... Uh, Where's I going? The yeah, the the presence bit. Um, it, it just feels so important. And I remember, even recently, um, I have a good friend, uh, a couple, and uh, his wife was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer a couple years ago, and he would call and talk to me and be like, "Josh, nothing that I'm saying to her is making her better." Like, what do I need to say to her? And I was like, dude, shut the fuck up. Like, that's what you need to do. Like, you don't need to say anything right now. Just be present. Like you're, you're not going to have the words and that's okay. It's, it's okay not to have uh, words in those moments. And I think that's, um, you know, something that I've learned kind of the hard way by trying to be a problem solver in those kind of moments and not being quiet and compassionate and present. Um, And so I, I don't know. I really appreciated that you, you talk about that because I think it's very practical and helpful <laughs> to to those experiencing grief um, or those in, engaging with people experiencing grief. So, yeah, and and maybe all of us all the time, like you know, just shut up. And most of my interactions I'm having with my partner, we've been married 34 years, and she doesn't need me to, you know, really fix it. Uh, she just and vice versa, we just are doing it in life. So I think if to the degree that all of us can cultivate that ability just to be present with people, to be a non-anxious presence, to add a little counseling therapeutic language to it. Um, yeah, to the degree that we can all do that, I think our world would, would be a, a much better place. Can you imagine Israel and you know Palestine, if they could just be present right now, how much how much our world would change? So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I'm yeah, I'm I'm with you. Um and I think too for people who are like me and they're listening right now and they're like, but like I, I need I have to tell people what I think, blah, 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 kind of thing. 
um, I'll just say I had an experience recently where uh, my wife uh, has been going, asking some big existential questions, uh, questions that, you know, I've started asking a little bit earlier because I'm weird um, and (laughs) not not a normal person, bit of a nerd. But uh, I haven't been offering i've just been kind of listening to her talk about it and and hear her out and affirm her and the kind of questions she's asking and yesterday um she asked me like if i had any thoughts on it and so that was kind of a really cool thing because um i just been trying to be patient for like over a month now (laughs) and uh she she finally asked like well what like what do you actually think so i could I could share a little bit of uh, my thoughts with her and it was very well received. So I think patience is a virtue as well. Well, it says somewhere <laughs> that love is patience. Weird. Patience is love. So I think it's, that's a good word, man. And that's encouraging. Uh, and when you started to just share that brief little story, like that is so much of my of my wife and I, I, for whatever reason, I've always, I've always arrived at these theological things a little bit quicker. Some of it was because I had to, because I was a pastor and I was dealing with it. And so, yeah, we've, that has played out multiple times and I'm, I'm not great at it yet, but I've gotten better at just, if, if, if she doesn't need it to, you know, be fixed right now, it's fine. And, and uh, there, there'll be, there'll be a moment when, when she asks and others too. So hopefully we can all get good at that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think um, perhaps patience is a a good way to kind of end um, our conversation today. And I, I've really enjoyed this, Jonathan. Thank you so much for um, thinking of me and, and sending me a a copy of your, your book. I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm going to be returning to it uh, probably more than once. And I already have some people in mind that I would like to share it with once it's uh, once it's available. Well, and now that I know you're a tactile guy, um, <laughs> make sure you email me your your physical address and I'll send you I'll send you an actual copy. Um, but yeah, no, I, I appreciate it, man. I'm, it's a deep subject. Uh, you know, we, we can't exhaust it, but I'm really honored to I've played a small part in writing about it and hopefully it'll help a few people. Yeah. Well, well, I think it will. It's, um, yeah, I, I liked it a lot. <laughs> I was telling, sure. even telling my grandmother about it over lunch today. So oh, wow. it's pretty cool. But if, if you're, if you're recommending it to grandma, then we're doing good. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, good deal. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much. I'll be sure to, you know, link, link all of the things in the show notes and cool. Um, yeah, listeners, thank you for hanging out today and uh, stepping into this, you know, deep, messy conversation mm-hmm. with us. Mm-hmm. And uh, as always, guys, go in peace. Mm-hmm.